We're starting a new series today. Yeah, and uh, it's called the Ghost of Christmas Past. And, uh, no, no, never mind, okay. Um, I, I want to explain to you guys what the series is about. Um, the series is about, well, right now we're entering into a time called Advent season. Advent season is basically this anticipation where we're doing our countdown to Christmas. Now that Thanksgiving is over, we're doing this countdown. We're like, hey, um, Jesus is going to be born. Uh, he was born well, 2,000 years ago on, you know, on that one day. And this is basically peop- the church, church calendar's tradition as to create this anticipation of the coming of Christ. Now, um, traditionally, people would talk about the shepherds. People will talk about the, the magi or like the, the wise men or however tradition you grew up with, you know, that they came and they brought gifts and, you know, there's King Herod. There's all these things you probably are familiar with with a Christmas story. But um, we're going to do it a little differently because I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone here. Starting today, what we want to do is want to go through the entire book of Luke. And um, the best way to do that is verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, what, uh, and the best way of approaching this is basically saying that, okay, so we start Luke chapter 1 today, and we'll work our way through, and by the time Christmas Eve service comes, we'll talk about the birth of Jesus. And so sometimes there's things in, the, the, in Luke chapter 1 that isn't usually talked about in the Advent season. So we're going to break that tradition. We're going to talk about a lot of things that Advent people don't, uh, Advent tradition doesn't really talk about. But what you will discover in Luke chapter 1 is that there's a lot of things in there that's, well, Jesus doesn't show up until Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 1, there's a lot of things there that's kind of pointing back to catch people back up with like, here's what's been going on right before Jesus showed up. And the way that Luke does that is by pointing, they put allusions and they put hints in the story that points back to Old Testament stories. And so every week we're going to be talking about Luke chapter 1, but how that points back to a character in the Old Testament. That's why we call it Ghost of Christmas Past. <sighs> okay, I know we've tried really hard to make this work to make it sound interesting, but it's not that interesting. Okay, so let me ta- start by talking about this. Um, I was telling my wife this a few weeks ago. Um, my favorite Christmas season um, is not Christmas season, if that makes sense. You know how like as soon as Halloween's over, people st- start putting up, or stores start putting up Christmas decorations. You know what I'm talking about? That's my favorite Christmas season right there. Uh, this is why. As a pastor, once we get into December, we get crazy busy. Like, to a point where we're not really even enjoy- enjoying the Christmas. We're like, we'll stand up here and tell you guys, like, Christmas is time to be with family, so make sure you don't overbook yourself. Don't be so busy, you know. Remember the season, reason for the season. But the truth is, a lot of times for pastors, we are hypocritical about that because we get really busy around the Christmas season. So for me, Christmas, my favorite part of Christmas is right before we enter into December. It's that time where it's starting to look a lot like Christmas, um, but we're really not in Christmas yet because that's when I actually get to enjoy the season. And, um, but I do have memories of the good times of Christmas before I became a pastor. Like when I would tell my parents, when I was like a little kid, I would tell my parents, this is what I want for Christmas. Or you hint to them, like this is what I want for Christmas. And you play that guessing game where, um, I don't know if you could totally relate to this, but you know how there's that generational gap in terms of pop culture? So like, I know, like for my, my generation, I knew what a Pokemon was, right? But if I had told my mom which Pokemon I liked, she would not know what I'm talking about, right? In my generation, with my kids now, when they talk about certain things that they're learning in school, like their friends are talking about it, and they tell me that's what I want for Christmas, I have to go on Google, I have to go on Amazon, I have to ask my friends, I have to ask my, you know, parents of the friends of Justin, you know, like, I have to do all this stuff because there's that generational gap of pop culture. 
And so I don't know what my kids want. In the same way, my parents didn't know what I wanted. And I have this weird, like, sp- specific memory in, in, in when I was, like, younger. I was into Transformers or some kind of robot thing. And I told my parents exactly. I didn't even hint it to them. I'm like, this is what I want. I want this Transformer, this color, this version, because there's an old and a new version of it. I want the newer version, not the older version. And I was trying to explain this to them. And as I was explaining to them, you could see in their eyes that they have no idea what I'm talking about. Right? And I'm wondering if they really got it. They told me they got it. Like, no, no problem, I'll get it for you. But I wasn't sure that they were going to get it for me. And back then, remember, when I was a kid, there was no internet. So th- it's not like they could Google and say, oh, that's what he's talking about. Cots, is this what you're looking for? And I could say yes or no. That couldn't, ha- couldn't happen back then. So um, there's this idea, this understanding of how I said I want something. They promised me, and a promise is a big deal. They promised me that they were going to get it for me. And then the anticipation happened. And then Christmas morning, I open up the gifts, and I find out that's not what I asked for. <laughs> Can some of you guys relate to this story? There's that gap in where you're like, I don't think my parents understand what I, I'm into. You know? and, um, but that's the thing, is that there's a lot of promises and anticipation leading up to Christmas. And especially if you're a kid, you're like, I can't wait until Christmas morning to tear open those gifts and you pull something out and you find out it's a sweater that you never wanted, right? You're expecting one thing, you get something else. Or sometimes you expect one thing, you don't get anything at all. And it's like this, this, this downer, your disappointment. You're just like, I thought Christmas was a time of hope and now it's ruined. Um, but for some of you, it's not about presents, is it? In my own experience, as well as I'm sure some of you here, because there's enough people here that I'm sure other people relate to my story, is that there's been Christmases where you expected someone to be there, and they weren't there. Whether if it's because they promised they would be there, and they just got busy and couldn't make it, their flight was delayed, or that that person passed away, or whatever the case is, you just expected certain, certain people to be there for Christmas, and they weren't there. And they didn't come through for you. And in other situations, maybe you pray to God and say, God, I want this for Christmas. It's not a thing. It's not a toy. But you ask God, I want my family to be together on Christmas. But for some reason this year, your parents are divorced. And you're like, God, I thought you promised me. So the question I want to bring up today, and this is going to go right into the book of Luke, the first part of Luke, chapter, uh, chapter one of Luke, is this. Have you, been disappointed? Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you been disappointed with God? Has God promised you something and never came through with on, for you? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we're all afraid of, right? Because when you're disappointed with God, it usually leads to something else. And that something else is that you start to doubt God. Have you doubted God? Have you doubted God? <laughs> right? Have you doubted God? Now, I think in the Christian circle, it's kind of like that thing that you're not supposed to say yes to because if you do, then people think you're a bad Christian, right? But the, the truth is, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, we see this heart of disappointment and doubt. And, and, and I want to talk about that today because that's how the story of Luke starts. That's how it starts in chapter 1 because you're, you're looking at a good God. You've been brought up to think that God is good and something bad happens. And you're like, if God is so powerful and he has the ability to do anything— and if God is all good, don't you think that those two things will add up to this understanding that only good things should happen? But bad things are happening, so that must mean that either God is not powerful enough to change the situation, or that maybe he is powerful, but he is not all good. And so you start to doubt the character of God. Or maybe he is good, and maybe he is powerful, but maybe he's not faithful. 
And so you start questioning, is God really faithful? Or maybe he is faithful, and maybe he is all-powerful, and maybe he is all-good, but maybe he's forgetful. He's like, maybe God forgot about that promise. Or maybe he forgot me. And so I think sometimes for some of us, like Christmas brings up all these weird emotions. That it's, like commercials tell you that it's supposed to be a good time, but it's not. And what encourages me is that the story, the, 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 the prequel to the Christmas story where we're talking about today starts off that way. It starts off with this loss of hope. It starts off with the story of disappointment. And, and I think people who read through Luke chapter 1, we might miss a few details here and there. So I want to point out a few of those things for you. So we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 5. It starts like this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now let's stop right there. Now, some of you guys are like, Herod, king of Judea, great. You know, uh, what does that mean? This is what it means. From the very first king that Israel has ever had, okay, it was appointed by God. They prayed and say, who's going to be the king? And then the prophet would show up and the prophet would say, God has told me that this is the new king. And so the first king was King Saul, you know, and then who's the next king? That is King David. They're all appointed by God. Until recently in this story, a group of people called the Romans came in and took over the land. And to keep tabs on that land, they appointed a king. And that king was King Herod. Have you, do you know what it feels like to have an authority figure above you that you don't agree with? No? Okay, this is like, try to imagine what that feels like, okay? A person that you definitely didn't want to be in that authority, you know, place of authority, right? And you also know that it was not God's intention for that person to be in that place of authority. That's the setting of the story. It starts off by saying, in the time of Herod, in the moment they hear that name, they're like, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how God planned this this land to be ruled. Something's not right here. And that's how the story begins. And then there's a little bit of a, a good news that happens right after this. In the time Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, which is a very famous character back then. So they're like, yay, Zechariah, who belonged to a priestly division of Baja. There were good priests back then, there were bad priests, but they knew that, that Zechariah was a good priest. So they're like, yes, a good character in the story. Ooh, maybe it'll offset the Herod thing. Uh, who belonged, uh, let's see, oh, and his wife Elizabeth was also descendant of Aaron, meaning like she came from a line of priestly people. So like, yes, this is like a power couple. This is God's power couple. Yes, they're going to fix the story. Then the next verse happens. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, which is like, yeah, that's really good. Observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. These were really, really good people. Not only would you and I think they're good people, According to this verse, even God looked at them and said, these guys are really good people. But look at the next part. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. Now, back in that culture, being barren was a sign that you were cursed. If you can't have any kids back in those days, they were very superstitious back then. If you couldn't have kids, they thought that was a sign that God did not have favor on you, that you were somewhat wrong that something you did must have upset God. But the, here, here's the tension here, okay, because this is weird. In this verse it says they did everything right, but for some reason they weren't having any kids. There's something that's not matching up here. So Luke is already creating this tension, right? And, and well, you're like, well, they could keep trying, right? They could keep trying to have kids. Well, the next part of this verse tells you that they can't because they were very old. They were past the age where they could have children. 
Now, what Luke is trying to set up here for us is this understanding that we all had back then, they all had back then, and some of us might have today, which is this, this formula right here. If blank, then blank, right? So if you think like, if I did everything right, then good things should happen to me. If you do bad things, then then bad things should happen to you. I mean, this if-then statement, that's how they thought back then, and some of us think that way today too, right? If I pray enough, then God will do amazing things in my life. If I am generous enough, then God will take care of me. Or like, these are the if-then things, right? But you and I know that no matter how much and how much effort you throw into something, the outcome is not always guaranteed. So let me give an example of one of the if-then statements that they were going through at the time of, of the story. If bad things happen to good people, then it must be because God forgot us. God's like, oh yeah, uh, I have to, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I saw it, you know, like maybe God forgot about us. God abandoned us. Maybe God doesn't care anymore. And maybe some of you have gone to the last one right there, which is maybe God doesn't exist. Like, there are bad things happening to good people. Maybe God, maybe this whole God thing is a sham, right? There's this if-then statement. And because that's how our mind works. You know, um, I lost a good friend. Therefore, God is not good. I mean, people die all the time. But for some reason, when your friend dies, then God is not good, you know? Like, but, but we personalize these things and we start thinking if-then statements, and that's exactly how the people of Luke chapter 1 thought. If bad things are happening to people like Elizabeth and um, Zechariah, then God must be absent. That's how the story starts. The story continues in verse 8. <clears throat> Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by law according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I'll explain that to you in a second. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the, the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So in case you have no idea what's going on here, uh, let me show you a picture of the, of the temple here. Now, I split it into two parts. The temple is broken up into the front part and the back part. The front part is called a court of women. The back part is called uh, the court of Israel. These people, okay, so thou, there are thousands of priests in existence at the time the story is written. They were living outside a temple twice a year for a week long each. They will all come and gather and they would have a week long prayer thing where they will cast lots to see which division of these priests would be selected to go into the inner court. Okay, and out of that inner court, they'll cast lot and they'll pick one person from that group to go actually into that tall building you see behind me. So I want to show you, next slide. This is what that looks like from the top. The entrance is on the right. That's where you want to go in. Okay, and so all these people, all these priests, thousands of priests are in that small area and they're just praying really, really hard. They're praying their heads off like, oh, you know, whatever they pray, they pray, right? And in the midst of that, they cast lots and they believe that by casting lots, like rolling the dice, they could decide who is the one that God wants to go into that building. Only one person gets to go in. Okay, <clears throat> and this would happen twice each day of that week. They would do it, uh, they, they would do the first one at 9 a.m., they'd do the second one around 3 p.m. Okay, and so there would be one person that goes in, and the way that it worked was that once you go in, that's it. You don't get to go in again. So you only get to go into that tall building once in your entire life if you're a priest. If you're not a priest, then you never get to go in there. So it is a huge honor to go in there, okay? Now, in this story, Zechariah, the main character of chapter one right here, okay, he gets chosen by Lot to go into that building. 
Now, this practice goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. I want to give you, I want to show you the, in, the instructions that, that it tells you what you're supposed to do when you go in there. Exodus chapter 29. This is, God speaking, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old, offer one in the morning, that's the 9 a.m. one, and the other at twilight, that's the 3 p.m. one. <clears throat> For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. Okay, now, he's like, this is what you're supposed to do. Now, I'm going to reveal to you in a second what the next verse says. The next verse could be the most encouraging thing that you'll ever read, or the most discouraging thing. Okay, now, I'm going to show you what it is, and I'll, show, I'll, I'll explain to you why it's encouraging and why it's discouraging. If you do everything that he tells you to do, it says there, God says, I will meet you and speak to you. Now, imagine how encouraging this is. You get to walk into a building, you do the things that God told you to do, and if you follow his instructions perfectly to, the, to, the, to the, you know, every task he tells you to do, then he says, you get to hear from the wisest of wise, the, the most powerful of powerful, you get to hear from God Almighty a nugget of wisdom. He could say one thing to you that could change the course of history. Okay, like, the creator of the universe is gonna say one thing to you that's gonna change everything right so this is so encouraging you're like i get to be the one that gets to hear from god this is amazing i get to meet god i get to hear from him this is so amazing i'm so excited i'm so excited oh yeah now this is why it's discouraging because for 400 years in the story of luke okay the 400 years leading up to that story each person would go in and they would come out saying god didn't show up i didn't hear anything from god for 400 years people will do this custom and they have not heard from God. God has been silent for 400 years. Zechariah has other priest friends and he's like, okay, um, I was selected. I'm supposed to go in there next week. Um, you were there last week. So what happens in there? And his friends will be like, honestly, Zach, uh, nothing. I went in, there's an empty building and, and there's incense and there's an altar and I waited for like an hour and God didn't say anything. It's so discouraging. So look at this story from Zechariah's perspective. If he had a, to take a survey, and the survey would look like something like this, right? Is it good or bad? The Herod's in charge, righteous people are barren, and God is silent. <clears throat> I'm sure he would check off this one. It's like bad, bad, bad. So you can understand how before the, Jesus comes to his story, right, that there's a disappointment with God. I've devoted my life to being a representative representation of god i'm a priest but but herod is in charge my wife and i we cannot have any kids but we did everything right and we have not heard from god for 400 years and you start to doubt there's an expectation you had of god and he fell short and you start wondering what is going on here is god even real can God, can we trust God with our promise, with his promises? Like he promised me certain things and he, can we trust him anymore? <clears throat> well, today what I want to talk about is doubt. Because it turns out doubt is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, I would even say that it's a necessary thing. Here's a, here's, here's a professor of theology and he's also a biblical scholar. His name is Dr. Peter Enns. This is what he says. Doubt is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of growth. Doubting God is painful and frightening because we think we are leaving God behind. When you're starting to say, like, maybe God isn't good, maybe God is this, maybe God isn't real, maybe, you know, when you start having those doubts, he says, maybe that's not a bad thing. 
I know it's scary. Like everything you've been taught as a kid is now up, like up for question, right? It's like, it's scary, right? But it's actually a sign of growth. Why? Because when you're get letting go of this, when you're doubting God, you're not really doubting God himself. What you're actually doing, okay, and this is the next part of the quote. He says this, we are only leaving behind the idea of God we like to surround ourselves with. The small God, the God we control, the God who agrees with us. You see, we like to think that God is exactly the way we imagined him to be. That God is going to, when I pray for something, God's going to give me whatever I want. And that's the version of God that I like to hang on to. But all of a sudden, when you pray and then he doesn't come through, now you're having doubts. And according to Dr. Enns, he's saying, maybe what that is, is God is telling you to grow up. Maybe God is saying, your understanding of God, it worked when you were young, okay? Like the, the Sunday school version of God worked when you were in Sunday school. But maybe it's time that we all took a step out of it and said, maybe God is more than just a genie in a bottle. Maybe God has desires that he wants to see in your life. Not, maybe his role is not just to fulfill your wishes. Maybe he wants you to fulfill God's wishes, Maybe it's time that you step out of your own understanding of God and realize that God is bigger than the box you put him in. Maybe disappointment is God's way of saying, you can't put me in a box anymore. It might have worked for the first few years, but now it's time that you grew up. And so Zechariah is being tested here. Zechariah is looking at the situation, looking at this whole thing, you know, like, I have not heard from God. Um, Herod's in charge, and my wife and I can't have kids God, you must not be, you're maybe not good, maybe you forgot us, maybe something, maybe you just, you maybe left us. And he's like, or maybe there's another option. Maybe your understanding of God needs to grow up. So the story continues. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. So he's sitting in the temple. He's like, well, no, no God yet so far. And all of a sudden, the angel arrives, and this angel is Gabriel. We find out that he's Gabriel later on. <clears throat> Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. It's like you probably have been praying for years and years and years, and we have not responded to you. But I want to assure you, we've heard all of your prayers. Even the ones that you show that you were, like, there there are prayers in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, like Psalm 88. It's just basically a venting session to God, like, God, you're not good because you have not done this, and I'm about to die, and guess whose fault that is, right? And he's like, I'm sure you've been praying the prayers of the Old Testament, like Psalm 88, right? And we heard every single one of them. He's like, we might be silent, but that doesn't mean we're absent. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. The name John means that God is gracious. He's like, not only are you going to have a kid in your old age, you're also going to have a boy named John. That's his name. And his name means God is gracious. And not only that, not only are we going to help you name the kid, we're also going to tell you what he, that he actually has a purpose. Really? He's like, yeah, next verse. Here's the purpose. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord and their God. And it's like, wow, so he, this character, the, we've been praying for a son, we're too old to have kids, now this kid is going to play a big role in your kingdom? And God would say, yes, but that's not the only thing he's going to do. Next verse, he says, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of the power of Elijah. Let's stop right there. The very last 
um, thing that somebody heard from God before the 400 years of silence is the very last paragraph of the last book of the Old Testament. The very last paragraph. There's a prophecy there that says one day God is going to send a Messiah. Okay? But before he comes, there's going to be a guy who comes before him who kind of reminds you of Elijah of Old Testament, right? And he's going to pave the way. He's going to get people ready for the Messiah to come. He's like, remember that prophecy 400 years ago before I went completely silent? It's like, yeah. That's your son, John. John is going to be that guy. It's like, oh, okay. Oh, whoa. He has a great part in this whole thing. And he's going to do that. And he's going to turn the hearts of the parents to their children because apparently, I guess, at the time, they weren't. And uh, the disobedience to the, uh, to the wisdom of the righteous, uh, of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He says, John is going to play, your son that's not born yet, he is going to play a major role in God's kingdom. And you see that part, the highlighted part that says people uh, prepared for the Lord? That's basically a phrase they used back then to say, like, there's a new movement that's going to happen. God's people are going to do something amazing, and John is going to be the one that starts it. So not only are you going to have a kid, we heard your prayers, you know, not only are we going to name him for you, we're also going to tell you what he's going to be born and what his purpose in life is. Like, wow. And this is Zechariah's response. Next verse, verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am old, I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Which if Elizabeth was there, she would be like, shh, don't tell him how old I am. <laughs> now, here's the really interesting thing. Remember, the way that Zechariah saw God was that he had a checklist. He was like, if this, 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 then that must mean that God is not good. Or if this, 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 then God must be absent. Right? Now let's put up this list right here. God was silent, a barren woman, and that, the, the, and that his people are going to be the people of the Lord that are going to go and start something amazing. Now, Zechariah is a priest. He's been reading the Bible, the Old Testament, for years and years and years, over and over and over and over again, right? But now that he experienced what he just experienced right now, he's going to read the Bible the next time he reads the Bible. He's going to see something that he didn't see before. Because when he sees this list, before he saw this list as, if this, 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 then God must not be good. Or if this, 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 God did not hear my prayer. If this, 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 then God must not care about me. He's going to have a different answer to this list now. Because when he reads the Bible, he's going to look at this list and he's going to say, oh my goodness, this list reminds me of a character of the Old Testament. He would say this, oh my gosh, this is the story of Abraham and Sarah. If you don't know the story of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham was called by God to go and make a difference in the world, to start this new revolution, this God revolution. And he said, and not are you going to do it alone, you're going to do it with your wife, but not only that, you're going to have multitudes of, of children generations eventually you're going to become a nation you're going to be a nation that's going to go out to the world and change and change it for the better but the problem was abraham and sarah didn't have any kids as a matter of fact they were promised kids but they didn't have kids and eventually um they got so old that they just kind of gave up on that dream and god had to come come back and say no no, no that promise still stands you know right and then they eventually had a kid his name was isaac and isaac eventually had a kid and that was jacob and that became the nation of israel i mean Zechariah will look at his own circumstance now for the first time and look at it and say, oh my goodness, my wife and I are living the life of Abraham and Sarah. What did Abraham and Sarah do? They started this movement that changed the world. And now John, uh, Zechariah and, and Elizabeth will look at their own circumstance and realize the parallels and say, oh my goodness, 
we're about to change the world again. It's because they were so stuck in this if-then mentality. It's because they were so afraid to question, you know, like, if, God, if these bad things are happening, then God must be this. It's because they couldn't get out of that box that they couldn't see what God was doing. See, because Zechariah mistook God's silence for God's absence. Because that's the way they thought back then. And maybe that's the way we think today. If bad things are happening to us during the Christmas season, maybe God isn't good. And that's the way we think. Because I lost so-and-so in my life, God must be trying to hurt me. That's the way we think. But the first part of Luke is basically saying, we need to stop thinking like that. Because doubt is a sign that God wants to reveal more of himself to you. What is God trying to reveal to you? Are you going through a time of doubt? Are you going through a time of disappointment with God? And it's okay to say, God, I'm kind of disappointed. I thought you would come through on this one. Why didn't you come through on this? I thought you were good. I thought you were this. And God would say, I am good. But let me share with you exactly what's going on here. And maybe through that, you'll discover more of who he is. Um, In the year around the year 2000, I went on this missions trip. Um, and there was some people who were older than me, some people who were younger than me, and there was a 16-year-old boy on this trip. And, you know, he was this, he was kind of immature. I thought he shouldn't be on that trip with me. But, um, and, but as I got to know him, I found out that the reason he was acting the way he was was because his parents were going through a divorce. It just so happens on that same team, there's an older gentleman, okay, and he, his parents went through a divorce when he was a kid. And as they started talking to each other on this mission trip, and I was walking by the room, I started hearing crying. And so it kind of popped my head in. It's like, is everything okay? And the young boy was basically screaming. It's like, why are my parents getting divorced? Why are they getting separated? It's like, this isn't supposed to happen. And at certain points in his conversation, he would even start blaming himself. Maybe if I was this, then maybe God would have kept them together. He was blaming himself. But you see, in his mind, he was thinking, if bad things happen, it's because God is punishing the things that I've done in the past. Like, that's the way he thought. And he started going through these doubts in his mind. Like, maybe God is, you know, like, maybe God is punishing me. But it's through that conversation between the young boy and the older gentleman, it's through that conversation that the boy was able to understand a new aspect of God. Because he basically said, look, I know exactly what you're going through. I went through it myself years and years ago. Right? And let me tell you, God is not punishing you. Sometimes relationships don't work out. And you're the victim in this case. Don't blame yourself because God isn't a God that punishes kids by destroying families. Like, that's not who God is. And then he started asking questions like, well, then where was God when my parents started fighting? Where was God? He's like, you have no idea, sir. I prayed and prayed that my parents will stay together and now they're getting divorced. Where was God in that? And the older gentleman said, I prayed the same prayer. I had the same questions. He's like, and you know what I discovered? It's not God's fault that your parents aren't getting a divorce. What I've discovered is that God gave them chance after chance after chance to reconcile, and they kept on letting their pride get in the way. And, well, in that specific situation, that that was the answer he gave. And he said, but you know what else I discovered? That when I was hurting most, 
when I was the most scared? God wanted to fix that relationship. But because God is love, he can't force his love on somebody. He can't force things to get fixed. He's not going to, you know, put your prints on timeout and say, now work it out or else, you know. It's like a loving God allows people to make their own mistakes. Unfortunately, in this case, you got hurt by their mistakes. And he said, but guess what? This is what I learned over the years, that when you were hurting, when you were alone, God was right there hurting with you. God was right there sitting there with you, weeping with you. God was sitting next to you, consoling you. And that day, that boy discovered something about God that he never considered before because he thought a good God is a God that fixes bad things. But that day, because of his doubts and his disappointments, he learned that God, because he's loving, he's not going to force people to get back together because that's not what the loving thing is. But a loving God, what he would do is that he would console you and he would sit with you and he'll be with you no matter what the circumstance. You see, these doubts is a way of God trying to reveal more of himself to you. It's his way of taking that box he put God in and breaking it open saying, this is what you thought God was? Well, it's time that you grow up and learn something more about me. I'm more complex than you know. What about you? Do you have a this understanding of God that fits in your pocket, that fits into your lifestyle right now. Maybe God's asking you, maybe it's time that I share another side of you that might not fit into the lifestyle that you want for yourself. Maybe it's time that you adjusted to me because I've been adjusting myself to you all this time. This is the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah and Elizabeth had doubts about God, the goodness of God. But through those doubts and disappointments, God reveals something more. And this something that God revealed to them was going to change the world. And God is saying, are you ready to jump on board with what I'm about to do? Because you need to have a vastly bigger imagination than what you have right now to be a part of what I'm about to do. And that's the first part of the Advent story. So brothers and sisters, may we all learn to have a bigger understanding of who God is. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.